find Revelation chapter 3. Wake up. It's time to wake up. That's what we're looking at tonight. And Glenn, I'm going to ask you to pull down the volume a little bit on me. Would y'all agree it's a little loud? A little bit loud? Okay, that's probably better. It's time to wake up. Revelation chapter 3. You don't have a guide tonight. Because basically the outline is what I've been giving you on other churches. <clears throat> to the church in Sardis, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I like an analogy that Dr. John MacArthur uses in his commentary on Revelation. He says the vast distances of interstellar space are even hard to comprehend. The nearest stars are trillions of miles away. He goes on to say such long distances have forced astronomers to come up with an appropriate unit of measurement. After all, the measurements we use for things on land just don't work in space. It's too fast. Feet or yards or even miles don't mean anything. And so the measurement used is what? Light years. One light year equals the distance that light traveling at more than 186,000 miles per second travels in one year, which would be more than 6 trillion miles. You think about numbers like that, it boggles the mind. He goes on to say, let me put it like this. If a star 30 light years away exploded, and died five years ago, we would not be able to tell by looking at it for another 25 years. He says, imagine that. We would continue to see the light from that star for 25 more years, even though that star is no longer in existence. And as MacArthur points out, he says, that illustration perfectly sums up the situation in many churches. They still shine with the reflected light of a brilliant past. Looking at them from a distance, one might conclude that nothing has changed, when in reality, everything has changed. Though a brilliant lighthouse of the gospel in the past, today they are dead and living off the laurels of the past. 
Now, folks, that was the case at Sardis. Uh, you'll notice in this letter, the church was reputed to be alive, but what did Jesus say about it? You're dead. Now, what we learn is that the, gospels the gospel has to be kept alive and vibrant through each and every generation. Every generation has to hold on to the gospel and fan the flames of faith, and they have to live out the gospel in their current context. And so we see a church is not simply to be a history book of what once was. It's to be a living organism and a witness to the truth today. Again, following the same outline, the church. The first thing you'll want to write down is simply the church. The church at Sardis was an actual historical church, and at the same time, it serves as a symbol of all the dead churches that have existed throughout history. Their life is just an illusion. Now, so far, we've seen that Christ has some expectations of his church. What are some of those things we've seen? Well, first of all, we saw that a church is to maintain its first love. It's love for Christ. And then we see that, we saw that a church is to suffer hardship when faced with such and be willing to suffer for Christ. And then thirdly, we saw a church is to remain morally and ethically pure. It's to be holy and it's not to compromise. And then two weeks ago, we saw that a church is to remain doctrinally pure because what we believe matters, because what we believe affects how we live and how we make decisions. Well, today we're going to see that a church is to be in a state of vitality and life. Now, the problem at Sardis was that they were living in the past, and they had long since just begun going through the motions of religion. They were apparently content on what they had accomplished yesterday. You'll notice that they weren't persecuted from within. They weren't persecuted from without. In fact, apparently at Sardis, life was pretty easy. And life was also prosperous. And it was in that setting that they had ceased walking by faith. And they had just simply started going through the motions just being religious without any real spiritual life. And so the message to Sardis is a warning to all great churches that are living on past glory. As Dr. Vance Havner frequently reminded Christians, he said spiritual ministries often go through four stages. There's a man, a movement, a machine, and then a monument. Sardis was at the monument stage. Now, you'll notice how the Lord introduces himself. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits. There's one Holy Spirit, but the number seven demonstrates fullness and completeness. And it's an allusion to a passage about the sevenfold spirit in, in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit gives life to the church and gives life that is desperately needed. Dr. Warren Wearsby writes, all of the church's man-made programs can never bring life in and of themselves any more than a circus can resurrect a corpse. 
He goes on to say the church was born when the Spirit of God descended on the day of Pentecost and its life comes from the Spirit. When the Spirit is grieved, the church begins to lose life and power. When sin is confessed and church members get right with God and with each other, then the Spirit infuses new life and revival. He's the one who holds the sevenfold Spirit, Jesus. And again, he's the one present in the church. He's the one that can infuse true spiritual life into Sardis or into any congregation. He's also the one who holds the seven stars who are described in chapter 1 as the leaders or the messengers of the congregation. And so the leader at Sardis needs to rely on the Lord and depend on the Lord to call his people back to true spiritual life. And then secondly, you'll see the condemnation there in verse 1. He says, uh, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, what do you notice about Sardis here that you don't notice about the previous congregations? Does anything stand out to you? Because there's a difference at this point in what we've read in the other letters. In the other letter, something came before condemnation. What came before condemnation? Commendation. In the other congregations, the Lord would commend them for certain aspects of the life of their church before he would move on to talk to them about what he was going to challenge them regarding. But you'll notice as he addresses the church at Sardis, there is no commendation. There's nothing good to say. There's only bad. There's only condemnation. Folks, imagine being in a position where Christ would look at your life or your church and there would be absolutely nothing good or encouraging to say. Is there a church in the New Testament or a group of churches that the Apostle Paul addressed that would remind you of this? Does any group of churches come to mind? One of the earlier groups of churches that he addresses where there was nothing really good to say. No? The Galatians... Remember in chapter 1 of the book of Galatians, Paul foregoes the customary greetings that he always put in his letters. He gets straight to the point and he says, I am simply amazed that you have so quickly departed from the gospel that I came to you preaching and you have embraced another gospel which is no gospel at all. I mean, Paul just jumps right in and says, I, I'm just amazed. I'm stunned. And so there's, there's none of this commendation that Paul would give to, say, the Philippians or the Ephesians, for example, and how he would commend those congregations and then offer a prayer for them. He didn't do that in Galatians. He just jumped right in with criticism. That's what's going on here as Jesus is addressing uh, the church at Sardis. 
Now, folks, what makes this such a scary and powerful reality today is when we look at what this church here at Sardis was being condemned for. They were condemned for going through the motions of religion, but no real spiritual life behind it. And that's a sin that all are easily capable of falling into. In fact, remember Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 said one of the characteristics of the last days where he says the last days are going to be dangerous days, perilous days. He goes on to describe everything that we're going to see going on in society and then he's going to close out that section by saying people are going to have a form, a form of religion, but they will deny it's power. They'll be going through the motions of church, but no real life behind it. Folks, this is a danger. I, and I want you to think about something too. Despite the sins of the previous churches that we looked at, Jesus still had something good to say about those congregations despite whatever was wrong. But of this particular sin at Sardis, there was nothing good to say. Again, this was a church that was complacent, apathetic, living off the glory of the past, and in that current day, they were just going through the motions of church. That was it. They're living on a false reputation. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. Had a good reputation. Probably had a good name in the community. You'd have heard a lot of good comments about the church, probably down at the local coffee shop. And you know, Sardis itself had quite a reputation. It was one of the oldest cities in Asia Minor. And it was a leading trading center. And it was very wealthy. Sardis, in fact, was known for its wealthy men and its wise men. Now, actually, there's something you need to understand about Sardis because it's going to come into play here. There were two towns. Two towns. There was the old town and the new town. The old town was a place of glory. The old town sat high on a mountain plateau 1,500 feet above the Hermas Valley. And the old Sardis up there had outgrown that plateau where it sat. And so because of the growth of Sardis, it had to move down into the valley. And that's where the new town and the new growth was. And there in the valley, there was a river. Not only brought water into Sardis, but brought something else. Well, guess what it brought? Gold. One writer said, it, it seems that even nature itself was conspiring to make Sardis rich. And due to the rich living in Sardis, the residents of the town had become comfortable and complacent. Comfortable and complacent. 
John R.W. Stott writes that the church here was probably progressive and was known to the other six churches. It's felt that perhaps it was a large congregation. And Stott says its program included many excellent projects, I'm sure. It was positively humming with activity. There was no shortage in the church of money or talent or manpower. There was every indication outwardly of life and bigger. They probably had anything going on in the church that you could ask for. But it was busy activity. There was no spiritual hunger or life. Somebody said this socially distinguished congregation was nothing more than a spiritual graveyard. They're religiously alive, spiritually dead. And you know the Old Testament prophets devoted a lot of their preaching to this subject, didn't they? The Old Testament prophets would talk about how the temple courts would be teeming with people and they would be offering their sacrifices and going through all their liturgy. But in Isaiah chapter uh, 29 verse 1, the Lord says, This people draws near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Same thing in the days of Jesus, right? The Pharisees and what they had turned Judaism into. What did Jesus call the religious leaders of his day? There was a, there was a description not very complimentary. Does anybody remember that? He called them what? White whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. The way they would whitewash the tombs to keep them fresh looking on the outside so they would look good on the outside for the community. But they were still just tombs holding dead men's bones. And Jesus said that's what they had turned faith into there in the first century. So folks in the Old Testament and the New Testament both we see repeatedly through the scripture this danger, right? Religion making the outside look good, doing all the right things, saying all the right things on the outside, going through all the right motions, while your heart might be far from God. Exactly. Yep. So I would ask you tonight, is there anything real behind your appearance. That's something all of us need to ask ourselves. Is there reality on the inside behind the outer appearance that we give off? Jesus said that though they lived, they were dead. You know, in 2 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul addressed a different situation. He said, as dying and yet behold, we live. At Sardis, though, they were alive and living well, and yet they were dying. Paul speaks of being dead for Christ's sake, and yet living. But again, the opposite at Sardis. One commentator said at Sardis, they're kind of like stuffed animals at a museum that you walk through and see all the bears and tigers and all the stuffed animals behind the glass. They look real. But they're dead. They're stuffed. What are the signs of a dead church? One of the signs, certainly, when you're more concerned with what the church has done in the past. 
Another sign when you're more concerned with ritual and appearance rather than bearing true fruit. Jesus said in John chapter 15 verse 8 that we prove to be his disciples when we bear fruit. The Bible also describes fruitfulness as lives that we impact for the gospel. So there's inner fruit, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace. Meekness, kindness, long-suffering, gentleness, the, the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, the inner fruit, and then the outer fruit, impacting people. That's what the Bible calls for. But the sign of a dead church or a dead Christian is when there's activity and motion of religion, but there's no inner or outer fruit. Folks, we need to understand today that religious attendance and religious activity, while being great, in and of themselves, religious activity and attendance, in and of themselves, don't really mean anything. In fact, religion itself can even be deceptive, can it? Because a man can be religious and suppose that he's right with God when he's far from God in reality. And so it's a false assurance, a false security. Well, what's the challenge? The third thing we see here, the challenge, look at verses 2 and 3. He says, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. They can be resuscitated if they'll act quickly. They can be raised to life again, but what do they have to do? They've got to first wake up. Jesus' soldiers are asleep. Now, folks, I want you to circle those words or underscore it. Whatever you want to do, wake up. The words wake up because those are key words in this passage as, I, as I'm going to explain. And anybody at Sardis who heard those words would have known exactly what it was a reference to. You know, are, are, are there some key words in your life that immediately when you hear that key word or words, either a good memory or a bad memory, comes to your mind. Do you have anything like that? Wake up. <laughs> that, that, that would have been for them, wake up. And let me explain what I, what I mean by that. Uh, remember how I said there was the old city on the hill? Way up on that plateau. Cliffs on each side. And a narrow entryway into the city in one place, one place only, into the old city. And steep cliffs, all the other surrounding signs. And so the old city up there had become like a fortress. It was very hard to attack. It was easy to defend for the residents there, for the army there, the soldiers who were stationed up there. It was easy to defend. Because again, one way in, one way out. Very hard to attack if you're an opposing force. <clears throat> well, 
Cyrus, the Persian king. You remember talking about him before, right? The Persian king Cyrus. He attacked the old Sardis up on the hill in 549 B.C. And after 14 days of failure, it said that he made a deal with his men. If any of them could find a way up there that they could go in and attack the city, there would be special rewards and commendation for that person. And so one of Cyrus's soldiers studying the situation one day noticed that a soldier up top dropped his helmet off the wall and it went down the cliff. And he watched the way this soldier, not knowing that there were the enemy soldiers down below watching him, this soldier watched how he went over the wall and the pathway down he took to get his helmet and go back up. So that night, guess what that soldier did? He got his troops together and led them up that way. And they went over the wall. And guess what even the soldiers at Sardis were doing? Because remember, they thought they were safe. So what were they doing in the middle of the night up there? Sleeping. sleeping. Even the ones who should have been watching were sleeping. So Cyrus's troops were able to overtake Sardis. Now, what's bad about this, even worse about this, guess what? The same thing basically happened again in 218 B.C. when Antiochus the Great seized the city. He found soldiers sleeping. Soldiers who should have been guarding the city. Sleeping. So not once, but twice, the old city of Sardis had been overtaken and captured because of not staying awake. So you think when Jesus said to them, wake up, those words would have brought those two earlier occurrences to mind? I think so. I think so. Folks, Jesus is telling his church here, wake up. Men are losing their souls. Men and women are going to a devil's hell. And so many churches are just satisfied. As long as they've got everything they want, everything they think they need, they don't care about anybody else. They need to wake up. There are congregations like that that need to wake up. You know, think about our situation in America. Aren't we privileged at this point in our history anyway not to be heavily persecuted from the outside? And what could that do? That could lull the church into a false sense of security where apathy and complacency results. It's something that the church in the West needs to guard against. We need to wake up. We need to be watching. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane that night when he asked them to pray with him, he said, uh, watch and pray so that you do not do what? Enter into temptation. Can you not watch with me? Remember Jesus saying that? Wake up, watch, be alert. 
In 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, John talks about watching, being fully alert and awake and abiding in Christ so when he comes one day, you won't be ashamed. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to wake up out of your sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. What's Paul saying? Jesus is coming at some point in the future. And you know what? Today, we're a day closer than we were yesterday. We're three days closer than when we last met as a congregation Sunday. We're three days closer to him coming. He's saying, wake up. Be watching. Be alert. Be alert. Is there concern over sin in your life and a desire to repent of it? Is there a love and a devotion to the things of God? Are you in your Bible and in prayer? Have you asked God to strengthen your service in any area? Are you making any attempt to grow in your faith? Are you spiritually awake and alert? Or have you gone to sleep? What's, what, what if there's no evidence of spiritual life in a person? If there's no evidence of spiritual life, you would wonder if there's any reality there, right? And you would want to say to that person, you need to deal with some things. You need to wake up and either come to Christ, or if you have come to Christ, and now you just slip back into apathy, you at least need to be revived. You need to wake up. And that was Jesus' warning to Sardis. That was his warning. And he goes on to say, secondly, not only wake up, but, but be strong. He said, strengthen the things which remain. I've not found your deeds complete, he says. Now, folks, there's a lot of hope in that counsel, isn't there? If, if they will act and act swiftly, God will bring renewal. And he's saying, strengthen the things that have remained. I've not found your deeds complete. And you know what that tells us? The Lord is not simply concerned with a good start in your Christian life, but with a solid finish. There's too many Christians, oh yeah, preacher, I saved in vacation Bible school back when I was seven years old. And you want to look at them and say, but you know, since then, you've not served anywhere. You don't share your faith. You... It's great your Christian life started back then, but what about now? How are you going to finish? Remember what Paul said to Timothy? I fought the good fight. I have finished my race, and I've kept the faith. And he's saying, Timothy, it's time now. I'm about to pass off the scene. I'm passing the baton to you. I have finished my race, and I've run it well. And I've come to that completion point. It's not just the start. It's the continuing and the finish that the Lord is looking for. A strong finish. And that's what he's challenging them about there at Soros. And there's an urgency. There's an urgency. 
They need to act quickly. Not only wake up and be strong, but also they need to remember. He says, remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. They have had the privilege to hear and receive the good news. As we've been privileged. It's almost as though the Lord Jesus is saying to them, what shortage have you found in me that now you have gone to sleep? Is there any shortage you have found in me? No. You need to remember what you've received. You need to remember what you've been privileged to hear. And you need to hold on to it and hold fast. And repent of anything that is an enemy of the gospel. And notice he says if they will not, he, he promises swift judgment. He goes on to say, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come for you. Again, probably a reference to Cyrus's soldiers. And then again, 300 years later. Up top, they didn't know the disaster that was about to overtake them. Disaster was about to overtake them. They didn't realize it because they were asleep. And Jesus is saying to them here, you know what? If you don't wake up, I'm coming like a thief. You're not, I'm not going to announce, you're not going to know when I'm coming. I'm coming like a thief. But I'm going to come. And you'll not know at what time until it happens. But then look at verse 4. There was a remnant, he says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Don't you love it in the Bible how God always preserves for himself a remnant? Isn't that great? And they have not defiled their garments. And garments in this case stand for character. For character. He says, They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The white garment there is a symbol of holiness and purity. And then in verse 5, he says, I'll not blot out his name. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Now, this is actually a beautiful promise of the security of the believer when you understand the context. You see, the, the towns back then had roles of citizens. When a citizen died, guess what would happen to that name on the city roll? When the person died, their name would be blotted out. If a citizen of the city became a criminal, Guess what would happen to the name? It'd be blotted out. What Jesus is saying, this will never happen, though, to the one who truly belongs to me. In your town, you see names blotted out. But for the one who truly belongs to me, his name, her name, will never be blotted out. It's actually a verse of security and of assurance. Not of fear, but of security to the one who is a true believer. And again, I think of Paul's words in Romans 8. 
In Romans 8, verse 29, Paul says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. This golden chain there, this unbroken. The one justified will be of a certainty glorified. He goes on to say, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Assurance for the one who belongs to him. At Sardis, there's that assurance to that remnant. And there's an urgent call to the one who's asleep to wake up. To wake up before it's too late. To the one who's religious without having life, repent and come to Christ and enjoy that life that he alone gives. So what do we need to do? Folks, examine yourself. Are you just going through the motions of religion? Or is the life of Christ in you? See, for the believer, we've been united to Christ. His life is in us. He's alive. And we're united to his death, to his life. It's not simply about activity. If our activity... It's just outer motions to look good, and it's dead. Is there the life of the Lord Jesus in you that has transformed you? You've been born again, born from above, born of the Spirit. You're that new creation in Christ. If that's the case, then you're to bear the fruit of that that the Lord is present and alive in your life. But if it's just motions, motions of religion, to look good on the outside, there's only one thing to do, repent and come to Christ. But again, for even believers, they can get to a point in their life that they become apathetic and complacent, and they need revival, they need renewal. And that may be the situation with somebody tonight that I'm speaking to. There's revival needed in your life. The life is there. But you've not been feeding the Spirit. You've been feeding the flesh and ignoring the things of the Spirit. And you, my friend, need to wake up. You need to be revived. You need to be renewed. Don't think of church ministry or their Christian life as just doing things that look good as far as appearances. We're to let the life of Christ live in and through us. And again, if this is not the case with you, wake up. Wake up.
the hour is later than it has ever been before. Any questions, any comments, any testimonies? <clears throat> When you said uh, a seven-year-old accepted Christ, but then they didn't have for any adult, remind me of what the chief petty officer of mine said when I was in the Navy. He said, it's not about your direction God wants. I mean, it's not about your profession God wants. It's the direction. Yes. You know, your direction is more important to him than, than your profession. Because he knows you're not going to be perfect. Right. He knows you're not going to make it all, you know, you're not going to be 100% Heck, you're not even going to be 25% right all the time, right? Right. That's why Christ came. But the direction, as long as you're moving forward towards him, is all you ask for. Boy, it would be nice if sanctification, salvation, we're saved, if sanctification went this way. But so oftentimes, it kind of goes like this. But hopefully when you look over the direction of the life, there's, there's Yeah. Cordell? What were the four church phases of that commentator that you mentioned early in the lesson? Okay. Um, man. A man, a movement, a machine, and a monument. A man movement, a machine, and a monument. In the short time that I've been walking on the planet, taking up space and pestering people, I've been, Pitts is the tenth church that I've been a part of in that period of time. Mm -hmm. And I've seen those four phases. Yeah. And seven of those ten I've either witnessed or been part of a pastoral transition yeah. during that time. Yeah. Some were good, yeah. some weren't. Yeah. Christian history is a delicate thing, isn't it? And can quickly change. Can change for the worse, just as it can change for the better. And congregations have to watch and have to be careful and have to keep their focus. One of my favorite motivational speakers I've known for a long time, James Hager, passed away some years ago. Mm -hmm. He was a very strong advocate in the First Baptist Church of Dallas. Dallas. Most of them unfortunately here. His favorite words, activity without accomplishment means nothing. Activity can be just busyness. Empty activity in the end is a bearing fruit. Richard? Very complacent and happy with you are, and don't see a real need. 
And we noticed that. I've, I've been on uh, a trip to Africa and seen that vibrant uh, hunger. And I was with the Canadian group as well on that mission trip. And the complacency, because people were like, so like, you know, we'll listen to you, but we have everything we need. Why, why do we need what you're telling us about necessarily? Yeah, huge difference. Huge difference. John? I think you used the word testimony. You asked if anybody had testimony. Mm -hmm. um, since Barb and I have come to this church, I feel 100% positive we're in God's will to be here. Your life changes each and every day. And there's at least 10 people that I've gotten to have a conversation with that have uplifted me because of the experiences they've had with the needed places. And every Wednesday when you write people's names up on the board, I've been blessed. I've had good health. But it came to a point to have a knee operation. And in the fellowship of this church, the people that have come to me to share their experience of what they went through and to pray for me, that's, um, that goes without expression is to have the fellowship of Christians uplifting you through prayer and walking you through a situation. Um, I truly am blessed just being able to walk here. There's so many people that are going through things that are far worse than me. I have no idea of what I did wrong to make the fracture in my right leg. I, I joke saying that my right leg was jealous because all the attention was going to the left leg. <laughs> um, but we change each and every day, and whether it's a race, God's never finished with us. And then you go to the proverbial question, why, why do things happen? Uh, I don't know why, but it also gave another time to share and to talk to people about your experience and about your life. And overall, I'm blessed. My life is very good. But so many people in this room are so kind and so outgoing to come around and just see how we're doing. And you did, you asked me, I'm doing really well. I have received and heard prayer through all the people that have uplifted me over the last three months. It's amazing. And you've seen that 2 Corinthians chapter 1 ministry. People who have been through that turn around to encourage you because their experience, they know you're going through it, and so they use that as a chance to minister to you and pray for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Yeah.